Hello and welcome to the Artsy Podcast. I'm your host, Isaac Kaplan, joined this week by executive editor Alex Forbes. Hey, Isaac. Market editor Anna Louise Sussman. Hi, Isaac. And Jeffrey Deitch, gallerist and curator. Isaac, thank you for welcoming me to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. For as long as there's been art, there's been money nearby. Anna, you wrote that in a July profile of Jeffrey, who played a major role in bringing the worlds of art and banking together. Jeffrey, you did your MBA at Harvard after working in New York at galleries and becoming an integral part of the downtown art world. You also conceived of an art services department, uh, which you brought to several banks, eventually launching it at Citibank in 1979. So I think a good place to begin, since most of the people on this podcast weren't even born uh, in 1979 when, when you started this service at Citibank. Yes, I was wondering. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know anyone who listens to podcasts. I guess I'm too old at age 65. <laughs> um, well, there's an audience, and I think they'd appreciate hearing a little bit about the art market in this period. How did people find and buy art? Well, in one way, the art world in the mid-1970s was a paradise. In the other... It was a disaster. It was hardly any business. So I wouldn't even describe the contemporary sector of the art market that I was involved with as a market. It was more a community. So the John Weber Gallery, where I worked as an assistant, was one of five, six major galleries in the world. It represented Carl Andre, Saul LeWitt, Hans Hacke, Robert Ryman, a state of Robert Smithson, a number of the best Arte Pover artists like Alighiero Boetti. It was a remarkable place. It was also a clubhouse. Many of the artists came every afternoon just to hang out. There weren't even chairs to sit in. They would sit on the Formica counter in the narrow office. It was like a Pullman kitchen where I had my typewriter. I was so privileged to be part of conversations at the, the highest level. The entire economic structure of the gallery revolved around the annual visit of Count Giuseppe Panza in October. He would spend an entire week visiting the artists who he collected, visiting with John Weber, Leo Castelli, just a narrow group of artists and galleries. And I would eagerly wait for the report of what did Dr. Ponza order for lunch? <laughs> and we just studied every aspect of his behavior. Uh, by the way, he always liked a simple Milanese, nothing fancy. <laughs> the first year I was there, 1974, everything turned out perfectly because Dr. Ponza bought about $150,000 worth of art. And that basically carried the gallery through all the way until the following June, where hopefully John Weber would make some good sales at Art Basel. But uh, that was about it. And every once in a while, there was another sale. I remember once when Baron Lambert came in with his unbelievably elegant entourage, I came from Hartford, Connecticut, grew up in the suburbs, and I'd never seen somebody dressed like this. So I spent an entire afternoon bringing out works from the inventory, and the end of the afternoon, he had his advisor, Pierre Proxine, 
give me a handwritten list of all the works that Baron Lambert wanted to buy. It was quite quite an, a long list. And it was something like $150,000. would have been a bonanza. And I give him back the prices. Baron Lambert looks at it and says, I'll offer you 75000 asking for a 50% discount. This was astonishing for me. So I went into the inner office, talked to John Weber, and I expected he would say, oh, forget it, or, well, counter, you know, say, give him 10% off. And he says to me, take it. I was, I was shocked. But what I'm thinking about that and realize this was such a difficult business that if we didn't accept this offer, maybe there was no way I would be able to get a paycheck for the next few months. So that's the way it was. It wasn't even a market. It was a special club for people who got it, who got this difficult art. And it wasn't until the 1980s that you really had a true contemporary art market. It, you sound almost a little nostalgic for, for the old days. <laughs> well, yes, I'm nostalgic, but I'm always someone who embraces the present. So I think this is as exciting a time in art as I've ever experienced. It's different. It's not like the 1970s where half of the great artists of the world would be sitting there, you know, talking with me in the office of one gallery in New York, but extraordinary things are going on. How did you um, figure out that you could expand this market and bring more people into this circle? When we were talking for the story, you mentioned, you know, people would come to New York, they just didn't know where to go or how to look from that position in um and John Weber Gallery, and then through your MBA career, how did you start to conceive of this idea? Well, first, I have to explain an ideological position. Okay? So there were only about five, six central galleries in New York City in the mid-70s. So for younger artists, there, there was no room. The galleries were filled. And the way a number of the talented artists dealt with this is they decided just to go direct to start bands, to make films. So I love this idea of art being open and accessible for everybody. And so it's not just expanding the market for more people to buy, it's for more people to be able to access an art experience. That's been something that has been an ethic for me ever since the mid-1970s. Now, specifically about expanding the art market. So I became aware, well, I was at the Harvard Business School, 1976 to 78, that there was increasing interest in art market participation. And I was studying the British Rail Pension Fund that was advised by Sotheby's on art purchases. Fascinating. So I've had the insight that this kind of framework could be applied to individual collectors. And so coming out of business school, I wrote a business plan to start an art advisory department for a bank or major financial institution. 
So when I got to Citibank after the program, uh, the green light, I was faced with a situation, a very conservative organization. The Citibank Private Bank was built on the old school trust department. And almost every officer was very, very conservative, as trust officers should be. And any innovation, like, well, we're going to help our clients with art, that for them was anathema. That was terrifying. Uh, so the first few years was not really selling clients of the bank. It was selling officials of the bank who would introduce me. And I would go to the various offices and say, you know, any of the clients who you visit, do they have art in their homes? Or do you see transactions going through the accounts with auction houses or art galleries? And most were so protective of their clients. It started with just a few people. Uh, there is an account officer in New York City, Joyce Moss, who's still involved in the art world. I see her from time to time, who got what I was doing. I remember taking her to the Times Square show in the summer of 1980. And uh, she was very interested, and she eventually introduced me to one of her important clients, Norman Brayman in Miami Beach, who, with his wife Irma, is one of the legendary art collectors, uh, one of the great American collections. And Norman Brayman was my first important American client. Did you find it easier to make inroads with overseas clients? Were there, were there, because I remember Citibank was a very global bank and that was one reason why That's you wanted right. to be involved. Was it easier to meet with clients overseas because they were maybe the officers there? Well, we, we had, we had the same issue. The uh -huh. also officers were very conservative. Uh, it was one officer on the Mexican desk, Roberto Polo, who also got it, what we were doing. And he was also one of the few to introduce important clients. But it was uh, several years of traveling all around the world to the Los Angeles office, to the Houston office, to offices in London, Geneva, Zurich, Hong Kong, Tokyo. And finally, I built a clientele. This process was accelerated when I suggested a joint visit with the head of the private bank at the time, Stuart Clifford, a really wonderful, remarkable guy, to one of the wealthiest people in America. This is the, exactly the kind of person that the Citibank private bank wanted to cultivate. They didn't really have much of a relationship with this person. And so I suggested to Stu Clifford, Let, let's make a trip together and you can see what I do. So generally there's not that much personal engagement when the banker visits the client, you know, talking about interest rates and you know, returns. And so we go into this gentleman's office and he was so welcoming and accommodating. And he went right into a conversation about his art collection, what's going on in art and what was expected to be a perfunctory 20-minute hello-type meeting, ended up lasting half the afternoon, and the head of the private bank was just astonished. He couldn't believe how city bankers could have this kind of 
intimate rapport like instantly with one of their top prospects. And this converted him. He realized what this product could do and everything opened up. Uh, by the time I left, about 10 years later, we had an amazing network of clients around the United States, Europe, Asia, Latin America. It's interesting because even if you look at, I think, the Deloitte Art and Finance Report and other things like that that come out today, a lot of wealth managers and asset managers still kind of see art as a, as a services department in that relationship building component. But for the collectors themselves at the time were people like Norman Brayman seeing their art buying activities at all as a part of an asset portfolio or was it a pure passion activity? Well, the insight was that there's almost no serious collector and particularly in those days who is doing it just for investment. And what the market was were people who were serious art collectors who needed professional advice and because a lot of resources that have to be devoted to major art, it's also a very important asset. The way I view it, it's really a step in the professionalization of the art market. When I began the program at Citibank, there was no institution that one could go to that had ongoing expertise in the financing of works of art. There were few companies that did this on an ad hoc basis, but there was no bank that had an in-house department to value works of art for lending to advise customers. So that was a very important part of the professionalization of the market. So this recognition that art collections were valuable and important parts of an individual's general asset portfolio. How did the art world that you came up in respond to this professionalization? Okay, so at first, it, almost anything new in art world or other fields, the old guard you know, is threatened and they're very upset and often vocal. And I remember that the dean of the art trade Eugene Thaw was very vocal in his opposition to what we were doing. And other people in the art establishment were equally adamant. But what happened is when art dealers, collectors, artists, museum directors saw that we were adding to the resources available to the whole field and that we were bringing in collectors in some cases, say even inventing collectors, people were very embracing. So by the time I left, the major museum directors were calling me, you know, can you come over and see how you can help us? And many of the major art dealers were always open to invite us to come in to see the back room, see their homes. So it changed completely. But we had to show that we were serious and show that we were making a genuine contribution. So if the result of the Citibank Art Advisory Department was kind of an art investment fund that inflated prices and then dumped the art and hurt the market, I mean, people would have been furious. But that's not what we did. We provided a needed service to art collectors, 
artists, art dealers, and the whole process of this helping museums and nonprofits. So I think it, it turned out to be a positive development. You mentioned earlier your belief that art should be accessible to everyone. I'm kind of curious how you think about the relationship between these very wealthy collectors and that sort of broader mission of making art more accessible or, or broadening it out to, to a wider swath of people. Well, I've been particularly interested in working with collectors who are public-spirited. And many of the collectors I've worked with have a public element to what they do. They're, they're not just collectors, they are art patrons. And so that's very exciting for me. So the Bremens, for instance, are patrons of the ICA Miami. Other people I've worked with over the years, Dacus Ioannou in Athens, uh, his Deste Foundation, transformed situation of art in Greece. The effects uh, that the Deste Foundation and its public programs have had have just an enormous in terms of spurring artistic innovation, creativity, inspiring other collectors, helping the Greek economy with uh, visitors from all over the world are coming to see contemporary art there. So by working with more public-spirited private collectors who believe in patronage and also believe in making art accessible for a wider public, uh, we've had uh, a positive effect. There's a separate difference between working with private collectors and what they do and then some of the things I've done with my galleries where we're just being directly uh, accessible to lots of young people. That's a different thing. You mentioned some of the activities you've done on the gallery side, and I'd be curious to hear you talk a little bit about what spurred you to take a different model there as well and what you think some of the, the major accomplishments that that model offered you or, or opportunities that model offered you than, than some of your peers. Okay, well, talking about the gallery, Deitch Projects, we had a very exciting run for 15 years. It did not start as a serious art gallery. It started as a project room, a platform for me to have some fun and support artists who I believed in, who needed this kind of support. At the beginning, we had a rule artists who had not yet had a major solo show in New York. We broke that eventually. I'm very inspired by artists like Keith Herring, whose estate I represented for 13 years. He was a good friend of mine. And I very much share Keith's philosophy that led to the establishment of the pop shop and all of his public mural programs. For me, it was just it was so exciting to see an artist making art for everybody, making art that was accessible to children, people of all ages, but not dumbing down the content. And over the years, I've looked for artists who have that ability. For many years, I've worked with Jeff Koons, more recently, Barry McGee. And people know that I've been involved with the history of street art. And artists like Banksy also break through his very sophisticated work, but 
it connects in a wide way. And today, JR is doing something extraordinary where he really affects international political dialogue. It's amazing what he's accomplished and kind of a reinvention of what photography can do. So these are artists who inspire me, and I'm very inspired to try to help provide a platform for artists like this, and a platform that also welcomes a wide audience so that you don't have to spend lots of money to feel that you can come into the gallery. That uh, It's open and inviting for everybody. You had a specific model where it, you almost like venture-funded the artist, and then you sort of see what happened to the art afterwards. How did you come up with that model? And where do you see room going forward for kind of other ways of funding, producing, transacting in art? When I started Deitch Projects, it was a simple proposition. Every artist was offered a production budget of $25,000. And if they needed it also, studio space, and they would create the most ambitious project they could. And we would try to sell it to a collector who would be just as inspired as I was. But if we didn't sell it, I would then keep it for my collection. And the deal was economically, first you take the production money off the top, and then there's a 50-50 split. And what happened the first several years of some of these very ambitious projects with Neri Ward, Chen Zhen, Jessica Diamond, we inspired collectors. The works were actually sold, even though they were very demanding works. And it reinforced a basic business ethic that I still have that don't worry in advance of whether it's commercial or uncommercial, if it's great, if the artist comes up with something remarkable that inspires me, very likely there's going to be an art collector out there who's just as inspired, who wants to buy it. So that was really the business proposition of the gallery. So unlike other galleries where say to the artist, well, kind of make something we can sell, make something we can take to an art fair. I'm nothing wrong with that. I've done that myself. <laughs> but at Deitch Projects at the beginning, th there were no constraints like this. Just make the greatest thing you can. And if it's trees hanging from the ceiling, I did with Ned Kosolikov or Oleg Kulik living in the gallery as a dog for two weeks um, <laughs> where you're not sure that anything can be sold. Uh, let's just do it. And maybe someone will want to get involved. And in every case, in one way or another, somebody did. I think that as a result, we were behind the creation of some remarkable works of art that otherwise would never have gotten done. Now, I want to go back to the reason why I wanted to follow this approach. So I love visiting the artists I admire in their studios. And most artists, when you visit in the studio, they show what they're doing. And then there's some drawing of some things. And, and they said, this is what I really wish I could do. There's more money around in the art world now. So there's more opportunity. But in the mid-1990s, almost every artist I visited 
had some dream project. They wished that they had the opportunity to make it happen, but they couldn't. And I said, well, let's make it happen. So that was the motivation. Is that feasible in today's climate? I mean, we read every few weeks, it seems, about a gallery closing, you know, an ambitious small gallery that's also trying to cultivate young artists. And, you know, you hear a lot about the high rents or that you need to get through to these um, extremely wealthy collectors who may only want some blue chip artists. Do you think the model is viable today? Or do you think there, what other ways do you see or can you envision um, to keep that kind of creativity going at that level? Well, there, there are certainly fantastic new galleries that have been emerging. And it's really a product of individual vision. But we do have a different situation now with what people call the mega galleries, with Sotheby's getting involved with representing artists. It, it makes it much tougher. I would say the big change is that the Leo Castelli model, where artists like Jasper Johns and Roy Lichtenstein would start working with Castelli at the beginning of their careers and stay with Castelli for 40 years. That model is under increasing pressure because artists somehow feel that they need to be connected with the A-team. And if they don't jump to one of the super prestigious galleries, well, then maybe they're falling behind. And it's unfortunate in a field that's all about individual initiative and breaking rules that artists are so concerned with this elaborate endorsement system. But as long as artists want to play that game, this current situation is going to accelerate. Maybe artists will decide they don't want to play that game. Well, we'll see what happens. For me, I very much admire the so-called mega galleries. They're, you know, they do an amazing job. But it is unfortunate if the art world begins to, well, it already has, it increasingly resembles, say, the fashion world with two, three major companies that own the major brands and that these venerable operations are just getting swallowed up into these giant international enterprises. Do you think there's a way to work kind of with that movement to the extent that when you started working in banking, um, there was a, a it's still a feeling of needing to to pull back away from the, from the financial markets or the asset acidization of of art and whatnot is there a, a in any way an analogous pressure point in the art world now that you think could be pushed on or innovated in some way that would provide that similar kind of unlocking of of the market or of the artistic potential more broadly well it's up to the artists now, artists today have more power than ever. And a number of artists are realizing, I'm the one who's in charge here. And they don't have to be terrified of upsetting the big gallery. Um, 
So if there's going to be a change in this model, it's going to come from the artists. What, when you say, you know, if artists don't want to play this game, what other alternatives are available to them if they want to opt out of this endorsement system? Or, or what are some examples of the way they are using that newfound power to chart a different course? Artists can start their own co-op galleries. You know, in the 70s, there were very important co-op galleries. And that's still a potentially viable model. So that's just one model. There, there's uh, artists who, like Banksy does, just rent a big warehouse and put on his own exhibition. Uh, there are all kinds of alternatives now. And some of these new forms will actually go beyond the conventional gallery model. So I, I didn't attend because I read it was sold out, but I read about 29 rooms from Refinery29 in Williamsburg that they sold out 19,000 tickets, something like that, before the whole thing started. And I visited 14th Factory in Los Angeles, just wanted to see what it was about. So there are these new f approaches where an artist a curator entrepreneur can create these pop-up situations. Uh, a lot of them aren't very interesting at all, but you could do one that is amazing and it's a whole new way for artists to connect with their public and influence the art discourse and make a lot of money. All right, it's time for where in the art world are we going to be drinking white wine this week? I'll start. There's an exhibition at the Municipal City Archives, downtown New York. It's interesting. It's not strictly an art exhibition. It's photographs from NYPD surveillance teams that have been released uh, into the Municipal City Archives, which are now putting on a sort of small exhibition of, of these works because it's it's it's... They're positioning them as almost photojournalists, but it's, of course, interesting because none of these images were ever meant to be seen by anyone but other NYPD officers. So it's offering a perspective on the city's turbulent history from uh, the other side of the police barricade that you get from activists and photojournalists. All right. So that's that's me, a very dry one. Anna, yeah, do you mine, have anything? <laughs> mine is totally the opposite. Right. Um, the most recent thing I saw was the Florine Stedheimer show at the Jewish Museum, um, which is totally frivolous and delightful and decadent. But it was also very much, I don't know, reminded me there's something kind of Wartonian about it. She was looking at a certain sector of society and and observing it with a lot of detail and, and um, astuteness and um, just a beautiful palette of colors, wonderful lines. I, you know, you could just kind of linger and... Um, all the paintings forever. And then she also did costume design or theater um, sets. And uh, so she was really brilliant and kind of polymathic. And I also discovered there's a Russ and Daughters um, downstairs mm -hmm. at the Jewish Museum, which is like, I mean, both of those institutions have been around for decades. I don't know why that synergy didn't happen earlier. I was actually, uh, fun fun fact, uh, listeners, I was actually at the Jewish Museum as an intern there when they were getting that Russ and Daughters. Everyone talked about it every single day for like months of construction. <laughs> they were so, so perfect. excited about the bagels. Yeah. Um, I got back to New York a little bit uh, later than I guess 
the art calendar said I was supposed to. So I missed all of the openings last week. So I'm looking forward to spending some time in Chelsea and Lower East Side this weekend, which actually I think is a good thing because most of the time when you go around to those September openings, you see zero art and just end up talking to a lot of people. And a lot so of I'm, white wine. And having, well, yeah, maybe. <laughs> uh, but, but looking forward to actually seeing the art this time around. I attended a very inspiring exhibition opening on Saturday evening on Imhoff and Eliza Douglas at the Buchholz Gallery on East 82nd Street. And like many other people in the art world, I was stunned, just enthralled by Anne Imhoff's German pavilion at the Venice Biennale. It was the most stimulating art experience I had all year. And so I was very much looking forward to this exhibition. It's a small, tight exhibition, but fantastic, with individual works by Anne Imhoff, Eliza Douglas, and collaborative works as well. And I was so excited I acquired two works from my own collection. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, that's all we have time for this week. Thanks so much, Anna, Alex, and of course, Jeffrey, for joining us here this week. Please remember to rate and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts if you haven't already. See you guys next time. Our producer this week, as always, editorial associate Abigail Kane. The theme music is by Broke for Free.